If you have a Bible, you can turn with me to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Uh, if you're a guest with us this morning, uh, I want to welcome you to Emmanuel Church. Thank you so much for joining us for worship. Uh, we're honored that you would gather with us uh, to sing to our King and um, to, to join and be with us. Uh, you should have received a worship guide on your way in. Um, and uh, on the back of that worship guide, there's a, there's a section at the bottom that says connect with us. And um, if you're a guest, we'd love for you to, to fill that out. Um, later in the service, we're going to pass some, some offering baskets. And that would really just be your offering to us. We don't, uh, we don't want your money. Um, we would love to, to get that connect tab from you because that gives us a way uh, to then follow up with you and tell you a little bit more about the church. Um, so please take time. You can go ahead and take time and do that now. Um, and then those baskets will come by later, later in the service. Um, to that end, let me, uh, let me tell us about a couple of things coming up. Um, if, you, um, if you're newer to Emmanuel, maybe it's your first time, maybe you've been with us for several weeks, and you want to find out more about our church, we have our next Discover Emmanuel class coming up on September 21st. That's a Saturday morning. Um, we offer that from 9 to 12, and um, that's just an opportunity for you uh, to come and learn more. We'll, we'll walk through kind of um, what we believe as a church um, our values, the things that are kind of undergirding and, and guiding us forward, the, the vision of our church. Um, our vision as a church is to be a diverse family of disciples living to make the real Jesus known in Birmingham and beyond. And so we're going to spend some time together that morning just unpacking uh, what we mean by that. So I want to invite you to that. That's September 21st. You can sign up for that on our website. If you go to emmanuelbirmingham.com events, there are several events posted. We try to keep that current and up to up to date, so you can go and register. That just that tells us that you're coming, um, and so we know uh, what materials to have have ready. So you can sign up for that. That same uh, that same day, our manual uh, ladies are, are going putt putting. Uh, so if you um, if you're if you're a lady. Um, you don't have to be a member of the church. If you are a lady and you're in this room, you're invited to that. It's on September 21st. Joy Fuquay is right over here, and um, she uh, helps lead our Emmanuel Ladies Ministry. So you can find Joy after the service, and she can tell you more um, about that. And then the last thing uh, that I'll tell you is members, we have, uh, we have a members meeting this Wednesday evening at 615. Um, so if you're a member, I um, want to encourage you to come to that. These are always special uh, special times together um, as a family. Um, so you can, if you're coming off of work, you can just pick, uh, pick up some fast food or pack a, pack a dinner and bring it with you um, if you need to do that, if you don't have time to go home. But 6.15 right here, we will have child care for that. We'll try to be out of here by 7.30. Um, so want to make sure and get those things on your calendar. Okay, I think, I think that's everything that I have for us this morning. Um, we're going to continue our study of the book of Romans this morning. We've been walking through uh, this book together. We, we did it for several months, took a summer break, and we started back last week. And this, this morning we're in chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 5 through 11. So I want to read it for us, and then, uh, and then we will dive in together. God's Word says this, Romans chapter 5, verse 5. This hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to, dare to die. But God proves his, love, his own love for us in that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. 
How much more then, since we have now been declared righteous by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath? For if, while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. This is the word of God. Let's pray together as we dive in. God, we we pause now as we come to your word. And we ask that your spirit would come and meet with us in this moment. We believe that your word is, is living, that it was inspired by you, that it's, it's God-breathed. And so this is not simply words written on a page. This is your voice speaking to us. And so we need ears to hear what you have to say. God, open, open up our hearts to receive what you would want to implant. God, give us divine illumination. God, I pray that you would help me to be a faithful mouthpiece to communicate what you have to say. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we began uh, Romans chapter 5, which is really a, a transitional section in Paul's letter to the Romans. So for the first four chapters of Romans, Paul lays this foundation of the doctrine of justification, that we we are saved, we are made right with God by faith, not by our works, that it's God's doing, not our doing. God is is the, the saving agent, and we simply latch hold by faith to what God has done for us through Uh, the life, death, burial, and resurrection of his son Jesus. And so um, last week we saw that as Paul transitions now to Romans chapter 5, he begins to unpack what that means for us. What are the implications of having been justified? And we saw three things last week that Paul tells us are true of us if we've been made right with God by faith. He says that we have peace with God, that there is no more enmity, there's no more strife, There's no more beef between us and God. We've been reconciled. There's peace. Secondly, he says that that we have access to the throne of grace, that that we are not held back by our sin any longer from entering into the presence of God, but that we can boldly approach the throne. Paul says that we have access to stand in this, uh, access to this grace in which we stand. We, we, We can boldly approach God because of the work of Christ. And we also saw that this word access kind of communicates this, this, this idea of realm, that we, we now live in the domain of grace. We, we stand in grace. It gives us a firm footing with God. Well, Colossians chapter 1 says that we've been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. Whereas once we were in the domain of darkness, now we stand in the realm of grace. And then we saw thirdly that we have hope. We have hope because of our justification. We hope not only for the day that is coming, the hope of the glory of God, but Paul says also that we, we have hope even in our afflictions because uh, the trials that we face in this life produce uh, perseverance in us and, and, and this steadfastness, this endurance develops our character. And when we experience God's sanctifying work in our lives, it actually leads us to have more hope because Because as we see God doing a work in us, as we experience his sanctification through uh, circumstance, it assures us that God is with us, that God is at work, and he is for us, and he's taking us somewhere. 
right? He's doing this work. And so, so even, it's, it's ironic, right, that, that affliction can lead to hope. But that's what Paul tells us, is that our afflictions lead to hope because we experience the presence and the grace of God in those afflictions. And so in verse 5, Paul says that this hope will not disappoint us. And it won't disappoint us, he says, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. This hope that we experience amidst our suffering, Paul says, it's not an empty hope. It's not a wishful wanting for there to be meaning in life. Sometimes we, we might hear people arbitrarily say, I believe everything happens for a reason. You've, you've probably heard that said before. Now, it's not that that's not true, but it's that some people don't have any basis for it. Because if you don't believe in a God who is imminently at work in the world, then upon what basis do you claim that everything happens for a reason? Right? But for us as Christians, we, we say amen to that sentiment. We, we say, yes, that's absolutely the case that everything happens for a reason because we believe in a God who is presently working through every situation, who is sanctifying us through our afflictions, that suffering does have meaning. There's no such thing as meaningless suffering for the believer. Right? And so we have substantive hope. That's what Paul's saying here. That our hope will not disappoint us. It's not going to let us down. And now Paul's going to tell us why. He gives us two reasons for this hope this morning that really find, uh, find their center in this one reality, which is the love of God. He says hope will not disappoint us because we have experienced God's love. Look at verse 5. This hope will not disappoint us, Paul says, because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. It's fascinating. This is the first time in Paul's letter to the Romans where he mentions the work of the Holy Spirit in relationship to the life of the Christian, to the life of the believer. And he mentions it here in a section of his letter where he's unpacking all of these implications of having been, having been made right with God, right? So because we've been declared righteous, we have peace. Because we've been made righteous, we have access. But now he says not only those things, but he says we have the Holy Spirit as a result of our salvation. Every believer has the Holy Spirit. Paul says that the Holy Spirit has been given to every Christian. Sometimes uh, it, it is taught in some circles that, um, that the ministry of the Holy Spirit comes subsequent to salvation, that, that you're saved, but, and then later you have, to, you have to get to this higher spirituality to, to, to actually have the full outpouring of the Spirit in your life. That's not at all what Paul's saying here, though. That's not true. What Paul's saying here is that when we were saved, we were given the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit indwells the heart of every believer in Jesus. He's given to every single one of us. And, and one of the things that the Holy Spirit comes to do in the heart and in the life of a believer is to effuse the love of God into our hearts, to pour God's love out onto us, to awaken us to the amazing reality that God loves us. That's what the Spirit comes to do. Jesus talked about this same idea 
a little differently that night when Nicodemus came to visit him. Do you remember this interaction between Jesus and Nicodemus? Nicodemus comes to Jesus with questions about who Jesus is and about the kingdom of God. And, And Jesus really confounds this religious leader Nicodemus by telling him that he must be born again. He must be born from above, that he must experience this spiritual birth. He called this work of the Holy Spirit being born again, where the Spirit comes and enables us to receive God's love. He said it's mysterious, this work of the Spirit. He said it's like the wind. You can't really see the wind, but you can see and feel the effects of the wind. Have you felt the effects of the Spirit in your life? Has God's love been poured over your heart? Has has your heart been stirred like leaves in the wind by the love of God? If that's never happened, I I would encourage you, I would exhort you to ask the Spirit of God to to invade your heart and to do a supernatural work in you. Ask Him to to pour His love into your heart so that you experience God's love. What what Paul is here saying is that uh, when we experience this regenerating work of the Spirit in our hearts, in our lives, it gives us hope because it, it helps us to know that God loves us. And God's love anchors our hope. As believers, we have hope because we've had an encounter with the living God. His, his love has come into our hearts and lives. But, but Paul doesn't stop here because he knows something about us. What he knows is that there are varying degrees in which this assurance of God's love is felt and experienced. Some of us are here this morning and and we might have a a palpable sense of God's love. We feel it. God seems near. Maybe we felt liberated to raise our hands during worship. Maybe we we were singing loud because the love of God feels true. It feels real. It feels near. But for others of us this morning, maybe... And we don't so much feel that. Our emotions are fickle, aren't they? We may have in the past had this sweet, intimate moment where the Holy Spirit made the reality of God's love so real to us. And those are such beautiful moments when we, we have this, this intimate sense of, of God's presence, a sure sense of his love. And maybe in the future we'll experience those moments again. But perhaps here and now some of us don't feel or sense God's love. If you were honest, you'd say, I don't feel it this morning. If we are completely dependent upon the subjectivity of our emotions, our hope's going to waver. We're going to be like a leaf in the wind. And listen, some people live their spiritual lives that way. They live their spiritual lives trying to ride the emotional wave. And so they keep chasing the experience. We have have entire churches set up for experience because, because we think we need the experience to have 
a firm footing to know that God is real and that his love is real. How do we know that we have hope when our subjective experience of God's love feels cold and distant? Where do we turn? Where do we turn when emotionally we're not connecting? This is an important question, right? You can't base your Christian life solely off of feelings and subjective experiences. Now hear me, I am not espousing stoicism either. One of the things that I'm praying for you this morning is that some of you would emotionally wake up because you are stoic and cold. Oh, that God would move over our hearts and awaken us to the reality of his love, that we would have a subjective experience of the Spirit and that that we would be moved to tears and joy and passion, that we would sing. I want that for us. But we can't put our anchor on that all the time. When we don't feel God's love, We turn to the gospel. We turn to the objective demonstration of God's love for us in the sending of his son. This is where we anchor our hope. This is where Paul tells us that we turn to no matter how we may feel. Paul wants us to know that God has objectively demonstrated his love for us so that we don't ever have to wonder if it's true. Let's look at the demonstration of God's love. Look, See it in the text with me. Verse 6. And notice the tie here in that first word. For. For. What's, what's Paul doing? He's putting, he's putting a grounds underneath his argument. That God, our hope will not disappoint us. Why? For. Right? He's tying it in. He's telling us how we can know. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died For the ungodly. Verse 8. God proves, maybe your version says, demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 10. We were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Three times in these verses, Paul communicates the objective proof of God's love. We know that God loves us, that his love is real because Jesus Christ, the son of God, died for us. What Paul is saying is that the cross is the definitive proof of God's love. For years of my childhood, I think I've shared this before, I I was racked, I was just racked with with doubts about my salvation. I would would lay in bed at night and wonder if God truly loved me. I would lay in bed at night and plead for God to save me. But But I could never get assurance that he did because I was searching for a feeling. I wanted some emotional experience to occur to to consummate my faith. And it never came. So I was just plagued by doubting and wrestling. Until, as a 13-year-old boy, I listened to a man preach about how I could have the blessed assurance that we just sang about. He called me to look away from myself 
and to look away from my fears and to look away from my feelings and to look upon Christ, to see him there on the cross, bearing my shame, suffering my penalty for, for, for me, dying for me, to hear him utter that word to me, to telestai, it is finished. Christ has died once for all time, the just for the unjust. This, this, friends, is how you and I can have assurance. The Apostle John says in 1 John 4, 9, God's love was revealed among us in this way, that God sent his one and only son into the world so that you and I might live through him. We, bear, we base our hope upon the definitive demonstration of God's love for us through the death of his son on the cross. This is how we can know that we know that we know that we know that we know that God loves us. I don't know if you've ever found yourself in a situation before where, where maybe, it was, maybe it was a tough spot to be in. Maybe you found yourself looking at a, at a travesty. And you've wondered, where is, where is God's love in this? How do, I, how do I know that God's love is, is real when, when he's let this occur? Friends, those are hard moments. And sometimes we, we don't see clearly. In fact, God's word says that we see through a mirror dimly. We see through dim glass, thick glass. We don't see clearly. We don't have all of the answers. But here's what we can know. We can know that Christ has died for us. And that is the definitive demonstration that God loves us. So whatever the case may be, whatever the reason may be, and God has his reasons, it cannot be that he does not love us. Because Christ has died for us. But Paul wants to take us even deeper into hope. He wants us to anchor even further in the love of God by drawing our attention not only to, to the Christ who died for us, but to the us that Christ died for. We, the, the beneficiaries for whom God made this costly sacrifice to demonstrate his love, are portrayed by, by several descriptions in these verses. See if you can notice them with me, starting in verse 6. Let's look back at these verses. I want you to listen for how Paul describes us. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now jump to verse 10. For, while, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? Did you catch did you catch the descriptions that Paul gives to to us the beneficiaries of his love in verse 6 he calls us helpless and ungodly in verse 8 he says that we are sinners and then in verse 10 he says that we were his enemies So in case you're taking notes, Paul calls us helpless, godless, sinners, and enemies. 
Here's a real seeker-sensitive message to attract the masses. Right? This is a far cry from Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. I'm glad you joined us for worship this morning. We just want you to know that you're an ungodly sinner who is helpless to save himself, hell-bent on sinning, and therefore you're an enemy of God. Welcome to church. This sounds discouraging, right? Why does Paul feel this need to so clearly and emphatically emphasize our unworthiness? And in fact, just in case we didn't catch the drift, right, uh, he clarifies even further in verses 7 and 8. He says, rarely will someone die for a righteous person, but every once in a while for a good person, someone might even die. But that's not the case here. Right? He's, he's saying, excuse me, that, that, that Christ's death for us is not a death for a good person. Jesus didn't impose his life in place of ours because we were righteous. It's just the opposite, right? Paul is making it explicitly clear that there is nothing good about the us for whom Christ died. Now, my question is this. Why does Paul press so hard on this point? And I think it's because he's trying to anchor our hope in God's love. Now, on the surface, there's paradox here, right? It's ironic that to, to, prove, to prove God's love for us, he emphasizes our ungodliness. But that's actually what he's doing. He's pressing hard on the reality of our weakness and our sinfulness because he wants us to see the good news of God's love and the good news of the gospel. And the, and the reality is this actually is good news. Now, how is it that that's good news? How is it good news this morning that we are godless, helpless, weak sinners? It's good news because it means that God's love for you and God's love for me is not predicated upon us being good or useful to him. Listen, God doesn't love you based upon your performance for him. He never has. He, he doesn't love me because he looked through the quarters of time and foresaw some good thing in me worthy of redeeming. And now I have to live up to that. That is not the gospel. He loves me despite the fact that there was no good in me before he saved me and the only good in me now came from him. While I was powerless, while I was dead in my sin, Christ died for me. While I was still a godless enemy, hell-bent on, on living my way, doing my thing, making life about me, while I was in that condition, in that state, Christ imposed his life for me. God sent his son to die for me. God loves me because he is gracious and loving. Not because I'm worthy and deserving. He, he loves me based upon his own nature to show mercy and express love. Put simply, he loves me because he loves me. And therefore, if I did, if I did nothing to merit his love, then there is nothing I can do to lose it. You see how liberating that is? 
Oh, breathe that in. Breathe that in. If I didn't earn his love, I can't unearn it. It's simply there for me to be embraced by faith. The great theologian John Stott wrote, The unique majesty of God's love lies in the combination of three factors. Namely, that when Christ died for us, God was giving himself. Oh, do not divorce the Father from the Son in this great exchange. It is the Father's love that sends the Son to die for us. When Christ died for us, God was giving himself. B, even to the horrors of sin-bearing death on the cross. And C, doing so for his undeserving enemies. In verses 9 and 10, Paul completes his reasoning for why we have hope by making two greater to lesser arguments. Listen to it. We'll start in verse 8 for context. He says, But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now here are the greater to lesser arguments. How much more then, since we have now been declared righteous by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more Having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? What Paul is saying is simple. He's saying this. If God has done the greater, won't he do the lesser? If he's already done the hardest part, then don't we have hope that he'll he'll follow through on the rest? If he has justified us, if God, holy God, just God, has found a way to not counteract his own righteousness and yet express his love to ungodly sinners, if God has found a way to justify us, if he's done that, then he's certainly going to save us from the coming wrath, right? If while we were still enemies to God, he sent his son to die for us so that we could be reconciled and brought into the family and adopted in, then certainly we're going to be saved on the last day. Do you hear the argument there? If God has loved us while we were weak and sinful, then we have nothing to fear in death. We have nothing to fear in the coming judgment. As the Apostle John would say, perfect love casts out fear. And now you see why it's good news. That we were saved. We are saved. Solely by grace. That, that we contribute not one iota to this divine interaction. Or as Jonathan Edwards put it, the only thing that I contribute to my salvation is the sin that made it necessary. We have blessed assurance, believers. We have this hope as an anchor for our souls. Christ has died for me. When I was at my weakest, when I was at my worst, Christ has died for me. And therefore, there is no fear in death. We know that hope will not disappoint us because our salvation is all of grace. And so what Paul says is that the only thing left to do is is to rejoice. The response to God's love is is to rejoice. Look at verse 11. 
He says, and not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. We, lo- we looked at this word last week, this word re- rejoice. It's the same word that Paul uses in verse 2. It can also be translated uh, to boast. And Paul now says that our response to God's love is to boast in Him through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our response to God's love is to boast in God. We exult in our salvation. We we rejoice confidently. And John Stott picks up on something really fascinating here. He he, he recognizes that earlier in the letter to the Romans, uh, Paul confronts the Jewish people for, for boasting in God. And yet here he says that we boast in God. So what's going on here? How is it that it was wrong for the Jewish people to boast in God, but it's right for us to boast in God? He explains it this way. He says, Christian exulting or boasting in God is quite different from Jewish bragging about him. The latter was a boast in God as if he were their exclusive property, And they had a monopoly interest in him. We also would call that self-righteousness. Whereas the former is the opposite. Christian exaltation in God begins with the shamefaced recognition that we have no claim on him at all. It continues with wondering worship that while we were still sinners and enemies, Christ died for us and ends with the humble confidence that he will complete the work he has begun. So to exult is not to rejoice in our privileges, but in his mercies, not in our possession of him, but in his possession of us. Pastor Ray puts it succinctly when he says, I'm a complete idiot. My future is incredibly bright, and anyone can get in on this. Right? Isn't that what Paul's saying here? We not only so, but we rejoice, we boast, we exult in God. We exult in God. We have no claim, we have no right, we have no special status. Anyone can get in on this. We boast in the goodness of God, in his mercy and love, in his sovereign sanctification, even amidst our trials and our sufferings, in his steadfastness that will carry us through to the end. We boast in him and we say to people along the way, you can get in on this too. And it's clear, isn't it, that one of the major marks of someone who has been justified is that they rejoice. As those who have been made right with God, who have received His love, who have experienced the peace of God, who have access to the throne of grace, who have hope because of His love, the response, the response is to rejoice. It's joy. Do you have joy this morning? Do you have joy? My fear for some of us is that we've become inoculated to the gospel message. We're numb to it. So we come in on Sunday mornings. 
We sing like this, sipping our coffee. We've lost sight of the wonder of the cross. That you were God's enemy. Your sin is not cute to him. He hates it. And he had every right. He had every right to pass you over and to leave you in your sin. God owed you nothing but wrath. And yet he sent his son to die for you. You were the one that burned his house down. And he sent his son in your place to liberate you and set you free. Church, that ought to inspire joy. That ought to wake us up to worship. We shouldn't walk in here humdrum. We should come ready to sing, ready to exult, to boast in our God who has saved us through our Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe you've taken your eyes off of the cross. Spurgeon would say that if, if your heart grows cold, draw nigh to the cries of Calvary. Hear Jesus, hear Jesus at the cross speak to you. Maybe you've never experienced the Holy Spirit detonating that bomb of love in your heart. I'm praying for you this morning that God would do a work in your heart, that he would awaken you to his love, that the Spirit would come do a work, that you would be born again. And so we're going to respond and sing, and maybe you need to take time to ask the Holy Spirit to, to work in you. Say, I need to get in on this love of God. I need hope for my life. Or maybe you need to say, God, I've become numb. I need you to, to reawaken me to your love, to help me to see the gospel with clear eyes. You, you respond as the Lord leads. The band's going to come up, and they're going to lead us to sing. Maybe you just need to sing. And for the first time in a long time, you need to go for it. Like, really sing to God. That would be cool. You respond as the Lord leads. Let me pray for us. Father, may we never grow numb to your amazing love. That meets us while we are still in the pit of despair. That God, it was while we were still your enemies. It was while we were still dead in our sins that you sent Christ to die for us. You didn't meet us halfway. You came all the way. And you resuscitated life back into our lungs. And you sent your Holy Spirit to pour out your love into our hearts. Father, we thank you for that. God, give us hearts that rejoice. Give us joy deep down in our souls over what you've done for us. God, I pray that there would be maybe even some in this room that have never experienced that joy that comes from being made right with you, that you would work in their hearts this morning, that you would draw them to yourself, send your spirit to, to wake them up to the greatest news ever. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you that we have an objective demonstration of your love. We never have to question it. 
We never have to wonder if you love us, God, because we can look back to the cross and see that Christ died for our sins. Thank you for that hope. God, may we live as people of hope. 